Well, welcome to Lab Life with the Air Force Research Laboratory. Hi, I'm Michelle. And I'm Kenneth. Hello, folks. In today's episode, we explore the Aerospace Systems Directorate, rotating detonation engines, and the elusive Porsche 944. In three, two, one. Today, we're joined by Dr. Michael Gregg. He is the director of our Aerospace Systems Directorate here at AFRL. Thank you for joining us. Glad to be here. So starting off, uh, we talked a lot beforehand. We know you're a big car guy, and we'd love to kind of get, connect with our crew and connect with the people listening who may like cars themselves. Is there any specific model or any specific car that you've always dreamed of owning or a car that you think that every enthusiast out there should at least consider that they may not, uh, may not be in their top list? Absolutely. I am a Porsche guy through and through. I've always loved them. You got like German engineering. Growing up, I dreamed about having a 944. I had the big red 944 poster on my wall forever. Don't have one yet, but I've got other ones. And see, that's part of the dream though. You know, there's still something to attain out there. Look at, do you still have the poster then in your garage? Like when you leave, you're like one day. I'm going to uh, get it. <laughs> that poster finally got torn, but I do have other Porsche posters up in my garage. Hey, you know what? That's what matters. So uh, follow-up question with that too then. So while you may not own one yourself, have you at least taken one around the track or have a friend that has one so you can at least still feel that Porsche dream? I do. I don't have a 944, but I do have a Porsche GT4, which I have tracked quite a bit, uh, especially when I was living down in Georgia. Lots of tracks in the Atlanta area, Savannah and Florida. So I had a lot of fun beating the track around the course down there. Well, just how fast are you going in your Porsche? Well, probably the fastest track I've been on was Virginia International Raceway in Southern Virginia, and they have a long straight. And so I had it up to about 155 in the back straight on that course. <laughs> 155. I think the fastest I've gone on my car is 80, and I was feeling like I was pushing it. <laughs> Ken's like, I've got to get a ticket. <laughs> yeah, seriously. Yeah. My, my beautiful Hyundai Ionic, love it to death, but that thing is like what? Zero to 60 in like 12 seconds. <laughs> so, yeah. Not quite the same beast, but uh, hey, maybe it's a better track car than I'm giving it credit for. But that that's very, very cool. And that, that's kind of how we're going to start things off because we're starting off your career and kind of starting off that interest. I mean, engineering, vehicles, I mean, they get you there. So something we want to talk about is how you got here in the lab. So kind of taking a step back then, taking our hands off the wheel, if you will, can you walk us through how a physicist connected with the lab and became director of our aerospace systems directorate? Sure can. So what inspired me when I was young was the Apollo program. I can remember sitting on the couch with my mom and dad eating some black raspberry ice cream, watching the Apollo missions. And that was just, that's what I want to do in life. So I had, before I had the poster of the 944, I had the, the poster of the Apollo 11 crew on my bedroom wall forever. I don't have that one either, sadly. So that was really what got me interested in science. And then I've always had a passion for taking things apart to see how they work whether it was a, a motor or whatever, a lamp, just to see, how, can I take it apart and put it back together? So that was really my, my inspiration. And then <clears throat> growing up, after I got a little older, it was, okay, what do I want to do with myself when I grow up? And I really wanted to be an astronaut. And then I said, okay, I know my eyes will never allow me to be a, a pilot. So what do I do then? Well, you become a mission specialist on the shuttle program. So, okay, how do I do that? Well, most of them at that time were, had military backgrounds and they had PhDs. So I said, okay, 
I'm going to join the Air Force. I'm going to get a PhD and I'm going to be an astronaut. So that's how I got started. And then it turns out my first assignment in the Air Force was working at Hanscom at that time, the Rome Air Development Center. So that's where I started in a, in a predecessor that ultimately became AFRL. I'm just thinking of your story right now. You, you like to go fast in cars. You wanted to, uh, you know, go to space. And I look at your portfolio and you have space and you have things that go really fast. I mean, I'm talking hypersonics in your portfolio. Could you, could you talk to us a little bit about what you're in charge of every day? <laughs> so I have, without a doubt, the best job in the lab. Just the best. Because every day I get to think about so many fun things and get to interact with so many fun people. On a daily basis, we talk with the Rocket Lab folks out at Edwards. We talk with the hypersonics folks at Arnold's and here in Dayton. We talk about big engines and little engines. We talk about autonomy. We talk about attributable platforms. This is just so much fun stuff every day. And the, the people just make it so enjoyable. And something I'd love to hit on too. So I know the, the people, a lot of the research going on here are not only amazing, but really unique to the Aerospace Systems Directorate, especially here at Wright-Patterson Air Force Base. So can you touch on why these facilities are so special or what really sets you guys apart in many ways? I can. So we have a very unique heritage going back all the way to the late 20s, early 30s, when Area B was first being built up to do this kind of research. So we have a, a direct lineage from those times and those facilities. And some of those facilities today, like the 18 complex, are still in use today for what they were in use for way back then. So we, we build on this very strong heritage. And over the course of time, we have some very unique facilities here, whether it's our wind tunnel facilities, our vertical wind tunnels or our horizontal wind tunnels that we work on for hypersonics or for testing platforms. They're just one of a kind type facilities that we have here. We're well engaged with, with NASA and with Sandia for folks around the country working in, in this space. And it's really exciting to be part of that. And down in the building 18 complex, we have some one of a kind facilities to test large engines. It's just amazing to go in there and see how they can hook these engines up and do testing and then walk around the corner and you can see where they were testing propeller blades back in the thirties. So it's a, it's a great time. We are one of the biggest power users in Southwest Ohio. So when we crank up some of our wind tunnel tests, uh, we actually have to do it at night because we make such a big power draw on the, on the local area here. So that's just really fun. Down in building 65, which has been around certainly to support a lot of the World War II developments, you know, there's some very unique facilities down there. We have the biggest facility to be able to do thermoacoustic testing in the country. So it's very unique. And I, I would be remiss if I didn't mention our Rocket Lab folks out of Edwards. So they are part of aerospace systems. And that truly is a one of a kind in the world type facilities. There is nobody that has the facilities that we've got out at Edwards. Yeah. I mean, you, you were going through the history of these facilities and things like that. And I was thinking, you know, Dayton, Ohio is a, a smaller size city, if you will, not, not, not tiny, but, you know, back in the fifties, we were actually doing some, you know, rocket testing 
in, in this, uh, not exactly a metropolis, but definitely an urban area, um, on the edge of an urban area. So I can see why uh, all of that moved out to uh, our rocket propulsion division at Edwards Air Force Base. And then, and what another cool you know, link there, you as a kid are talking about the Apollo missions and you know that's that's where they did the testing on the, on the rocket test stands like how full circle is that from your dreams as, as a kid looking at that poster in your room yeah I can remember one of the most inspirational things that I've ever seen was a Saturn V rocket in person and then to go out to Edwards to see where they tested those engines that was just like that was really coming full circle it was so much fun you also mentioned AEDC in, in Tennessee what do we have down there so we have a branch of our hypersonics division down there, and they are very well connected with the test and evaluation world that goes on down at Edwards. But we have some very unique facilities where we do R&D. We have some tunnels down there in the Von Karman building. So there's great lineage there. Back to Hap Arnold and Theodore Von Karman saying, hey, the, the way we can be as an air power, dominate in air power is to have great research. And so down there, we have some very unique facilities and tunnels, and we, we help them, uh, the rest of Arnold, and they help us. So it's a very, a very good collaborative organization we have going on down there. It's really amazing to think, like kind of pulling a lot of these together, just how much, you said, history really goes into this director and how far back it goes, even to the beginning of aviation, uh, which or I should say of like, you know, heavier than air aviation. And many of us know that some of our directorates do have that lineage, but to have something connected to the rocket programs uh, that we've had in the United States, like you said, even connecting to Apollo is just I mean, it's inspiring. So every day would be hard, at least for me, to not get distracted. Thinking about the different facilities I'm working in, even looking at old posters or even old stories or artifacts saying, hey, we really are standing on the shoulders of giants here. So one more great tie back to our lineage is we have a wind tunnel that dates back to the Wright brothers kicking around here. So uh, we do go back that far. And in my office, I have a giant mural and people like to come by and see it. And, and it starts with the Wright brothers. And they were certainly also another early inspiration for me. They were just such brilliant engineers and also their engine builder, Charles Taylor, just a fantastic engineer helping them out. You hear a lot about the Wright brothers and they certainly pushed aeronautics. But if you didn't have the propulsion system that Charles Taylor built, they wouldn't have gotten off the ground. And Well, and something for our listeners too. Often we refer to, you know, our, our roots going back over 100 years. We're recording this on the Army's birthday. You know, we used to be a part of uh, the United States Army back in the day before things evolved to have a, a new service. So it's exciting at this time to be able to support both the Air Force and the Space Force. So we, we've worked very hard to build up those partnerships as the USSF stands up, figuring out how do we support them, what, the re, what their requirements are. And so that's an exciting part of also going on out at Edwards is not only do we have rocket launch or space access, rapid space access, but it's also on orbit. So the green propellant that we have developed, the team has developed over the last couple of years is just fantastic. And in fact, it was the Air Force representative to the Collier Award this year. It didn't win, but it was very gratifying for the team to be nominated at the Air Force level for that prestigious award. Yeah, we had the chance to help support the team in some capacity. To see them get that far, you're right. It is well more than deserved. Seeing how long it took to build the Ascent program up and see it finally come to fruition. I mean, that team should not only be proud, but uh, knowing that they are, like you said, changing the world of uh, 
really getting up to space, uh, which, which is so cool. And it kind of brings me to our next point. Uh, we're talking about such awesome history and such awesome projects. Is there anything that the director is focusing on in terms of major technology areas here, let's say over the next few years or even the next decade? So yes, we very deliberately tried to narrow down our focus, especially in the 6.3 world. So we want to focus on hypersonics, certainly. We want to focus on autonomous collaborative systems. We want to focus on rotating detonation engines, and we want to focus on rapid, tactically responsive space access. Those are our big pushes at the time. And I know Michelle touched on it earlier, and we'd love to hear. So we have this section of our uh, podcast called X101, and this one's going to be kind of, you know, aerospace 101 in some ways. Um, I know we were talking about hypersonics and going super fast, but we'd love to hear from you. What is the focus on hypersonics, and why should we be, well, really having that be a major uh, technology area, especially for the directorate? So hypersonics is really important in today's world, more so than it has ever been before, because as our near peers develop their capabilities, they push us farther and farther away from a defensive perspective. So we need to have something that has long range, but also has high speed so we can reach that a potential target in a short amount of time. We, we don't have five, six hours to launch something and hope that it gets there. And the thing that we may be targeting is still there five hours later. So we need to have the ability to go fast and go long. And that's what hypersonics allows us to do. Now, hopefully we'll also be able to expand hypersonics into the air breathing world that we can use it on reusable aircraft. So that's another long range goal that we have. Yeah, that'd be interesting because thinking about the logistics of it, like I, whenever somebody or at least I think of like a faster aircraft, I always immediately go to the Concorde, thinking about going almost, you know, Mach 2 and going pretty quick across the pond. But in perspective for like our folks listening, at least, or putting it in perspective, how fast is fast with this? Because uh, let's say if you're traveling between uh, city A and city B, how much is this cutting down on like a commercial flight? So let's consider a flight from New York to Los Angeles. And today that's five plus hours. Today, if we had a hypersonic vehicle in the Mach 5-ish plus range, now we're talking about being able to do that six hour, five to six hour flight in 90 minutes. That's still staggering, <laughs> even to hear that. Like it's, you hear it, but until you actually have that quantified in distance, it doesn't really quite sink in. So that, like you'd mentioned, shows just how important it is to get this technology out there, at least improve it. Because you're right, uh, fast adaptive response. I mean, that's about as fast as it gets. That's right. So that really does set it perspective for just how fast, you know, fast is with hypersonics. So I'm glad you could help quantify that for our listeners. Uh, but going on to the next section we have, then you mentioned another very interesting piece of technology. So for this aerospace 101 section, we'd love to hear about what rotating detonation engines really are. Because uh, when, when I hear that it comes to mind, I know a lot of uh, combustion work and engines are a bunch of explosions in place, uh, controlled, mind you. But this sounds, I mean, it sounds like it's at the next level. Rotating detonation, that sounds pretty cool. So... This technology is, is not new. It's been around for a number of years, but it's only been in the last 10 years or so that technology and understanding has enabled us to take this from a lab concept into something that has true utility. And the power of a rotating detonation engine is not that the engine itself has rotating parts. There are no rotating parts. It's the detonation wave that rotates around a drum, so to speak. So that's how you 
can shrink dramatically the size of an engine. So if you think of a fighter class engine, if we could get a rotating detonation engine to work like we think we can, we would shrink the length of a fighter engine by say eight to 10 feet. So what that does is that enables you more space for fuel or more space for internal carry weapons, or it may allow you to optimize your system and maybe develop a smaller platform. So smaller means less weight and we tend to buy things by the pound. And so that could be less cost. So the idea of a rotating detonation engine is really, really powerful. And it's, we're making progress and we hope to be at a flight test here in just a few years. If I recall right, we experienced some first with some of our partners in industry and academia in this area. So we are very much pushing hard on the, uh, the envelope here in our facilities at Wright-Pat, but we also have ongoing work with academia and with industry to think about how do we get more people working on this, thinking about this space, whether it's for the main engine, whether it's for an augmenter, um, that it is so young and so new that we are really trying to push boundaries here and also trying to develop the manpower who will work in this area. And so we're trying to inspire students to get interested in this area because this is truly, truly a game changer if we can get this to work like we think we can. Well, and for our, our students that might be listening or, or our folks that are mentors to students, you know, what kind of career fields do you think would play into this, you know, evolving space? The horizon is just so broad. You can think about if you're really interested in modeling and digital engineering and model-based systems engineering, we need that kind of ability to model both from an air breathing perspective and also applying rotate, rotating detonation to the rocket world. So if you're interested in modeling, we got you covered. If you're interested in materials, we got you covered. There's some really hard problems on materials because as this detonation wave rotates, there's the heat, managing the heat is, is a challenge. And so we have to use some materials that we haven't used before, figuring out how to do that. If you're interested in, in playing big engines that go fast, this is, this is you. Uh, there's great experimentation work that needs to be done. If you're interested in flight tests, we're going to have a whole lot of that kind of work coming up soon. So if you're interested in this kind of technology and it gets you excited, hey, we've got a job for you. And it sounds like uh, there's a connection here. You mentioned that there are some air breathing engines you're trying to work on to improve hypersonics. So are these going to be mutually exclusive or are these kind of ideas linking together to make that more efficient engine you were speaking on? So you're not going to take an RDE and get that up into the hypersonic world, but you may have an RDE that will help boost you to get it started, to get a scramjet moving. So that you can relate them and you can stack them. We're, we're not quite there yet. That makes sense. I just, I heard the, um, you know, I was, I was trying to connect different keywords I was hearing. So that, that makes sense. You need to get there first, that extra boost. So uh, it sounds like from what you're saying, RDE is going to be a very exciting thing. We're going to be really hitting on in the next few years and should be hearing a lot more about here soon. Absolutely. We're pushing hard. 
And with that, uh, there's other versioning technologies that have now been around for a little bit, but of course, maturing in a very real way here now that we've you know gotten to the new part of this decade. And something else a lot of our viewers uh, are talking about, a buzzword, is artificial intelligence. So I'm not sure if your team is working on anything like machine teaming, artificial intelligence, or even having a, a virtual co-pilot, if you will, uh, in the works or anything like that to help the warfighter. So our folks in RQQ have been working autonomy really hard. And a lot of work that they have done over the last five years or so has really been the basis of Skyborg, the Vanguard. And now what we're trying to do is work on apps that would ride on top of that, that brain or that nervous system. So depending on what mission we want to pursue, whether it's a adversary air mission or whether it's an upward sensor, whatever it is, we want to develop some mission behaviors that can ride on top of Skyboard. But one of the things that JC Lede is, is working on for us is thinking about how do we get more autonomy or machine learning or aids into the cockpit. So one of the things he's talking about is how do we put a, put a box in the cockpit to take some of the workload off a pilot? So is it helping him make rapid decisions? Is it running checklists? Is it managing maps? Those are the things that we we can pursue and work not only internally to, to the Air Force, but actually with commercial industry. So there may be some opportunities, just like we're doing with the eVTOL on Agility Prime, there may be a, an activity that we can collaborate with industry to help develop some of these behaviors or some of these pilot augmentation modes of autonomy. And that is fascinating to think that we could have, as you mentioned, like if you really had this fully actualized out in testing that pilots could really not be distracting us from the uh, minutia in the cockpit. Like you mentioned, like things could be automated to make their lives literally easier, or at least to be able to contact back to base too, if there's anything uh, wrong with the aircraft or anything happens. Things can certain things can be taken down an avenue where they're saying, hey, you just keep focusing on flying on the mission. I've got you covered like that. It almost sounds like sci fi to me. So if you consider where aviation is going, you know, 20 years from now. Are we likely to have manned pilots? Probably. Are we likely to have a lot more autonomous vehicles flying? Absolutely. So how do we bridge that gap? Well, it's by building trust in the autonomy or building trust in these behaviors. And the way to do that is to start showing a pilot how these autonomous or machine learning type behaviors can augment them and make their job easier. Uh, if you can start to develop that trust, whether it's in a commercial airline or this concept of the loyal wingman, that's how this, the whole state of the art progresses. We have to build that trust up front that the autonomous behaviors are not going to have negative unintended consequences. So if you think about how we expand autonomy over time, there's going to be this augmentation and then there's going to be some automated plays or automated missions. And then ultimately, you really want to have autonomous collaborative behaviors from an Air Force mission perspective so we can send a team of autonomous vehicles downrange to perform missions that may be very hazardous to our manned platforms. 
Yeah, and that's something we'd heard. Like, I know there's the, the joke that's been made with Skyborg. Sounds like Skynet, and everyone, you know, says, oh, yeah, you know, it's like Terminator. That's funny. But, um, and that's, you kind of touched on it, a real fear that some folks have, um, whether it be pilots or even folks at home, uh, saying, hey, if this thing's fully autonomous, like, how safe is it really? Is it going to keep my interest in mind? Like, how do I know it's not just an ally, but could be something more? But you put it best in saying, it's here to assist you. It's here to make sure that it's not taking over anything. It's here, I'm making sure your job is easier um, just by helping take care of some of those subsystems and as you mentioned doing things that may be too dangerous for certain pilots to get into just to help maintain that quality of life so it's the idea we've heard more of i am your allies we mentioned not really looking to take over anything past that capacity and you hit on the fact that a lot of people are trying to work on getting through that getting that trust up so That's i'm right. glad to hear that that trust is something that your air the directorate's been building up on for a lot of folks within the air force itself we're working hard and on the ground too, for our, our race car drivers and stuff, I'm sure as technology evolved to different safety systems or braking systems, I'm sure that they had to learn to, to trust their, their, their cars too here on the ground. And maybe more folks can, can relate to that since most of us aren't pilots. So there's great opportunity for us to expand autonomy and robotics in ground support. So there's a lot of uh, activities, uh, plane lands that we need to, can we automatically refuel it? Can we service it? Can we download information? Can we send tools out to mechanics? Um, one of the things that we've been working on is a augmented and virtual reality tools, VAMRAM, um, to be able to help mechanics. So it's this whole space of flight line of the future. There are definitely some automated behaviors that we would like to to develop and to transition out to our mobility forces, our fighter forces to do some of the offload, some of these very difficult tasks and could be difficult environments, whether it's hot like Georgia hot or whether it's cold like Alaska cold. If we can offload some of the, the, the challenges and do that robotically through autonomous behaviors, that would be a big plus to our warfighters. To transition a bit, you mentioned that tactically responsive space access is is a, another main thrust of uh, your directorate. Could you explain that what that means? Right, so it has long been a dream for us to be able to cut a time frame down to launch something from years to days to hours. And technology has just not allowed us to do that, nor the, ex the expense of doing something like that has not allowed us to do it. But as things progress, as commercial industry has gotten involved in the space, space launch business, uh, we've started to see costs come down. We have better technology. And what we would really like to do is if we were in a situation where we rapidly needed to launch a capability, that we could do that in a day or less. So that's what we mean by tactically responsive. So if a satellite failed and created a gap and we wanted to be able to close that gap immediately, that's what we would need tactically responsive way to be able to launch something. So next year we are hoping to be able to demonstrate taking a, a platform from Edwards up to Vandenberg to be able to launch it in just a few days. So we're, we're very excited about that. 
And an aspect of that that you mentioned is uh, working alongside industry to really make a lot of this happen. So with space especially, it's, as we know, been growing very quickly. Uh, where do you see industry's role really linking with us in this 10-year plan as we're trying to keep very uh, tactically agile, as you put it, in space? So commercial is absolutely essential to growing our space capabilities. We absolutely have to have it. And they are leading us, frankly, the DOD. You think of all the things that SpaceX is doing and, and launching so many satellites and doing it at a cost that's reasonable for them to do that. That's really pushing the state of the art. So as other entrants into the space world come online, they have to have the ability to test. And that's where they are coming to us and to the rocket lab to say, hey, you've got some unique one-of-a-kind facilities. How can we partner to be able to do some testing where not only you get the benefit, but we get the benefit? So there's a, there's a really good mechanism through, through CRADAs that we have to help these commercial industries and they're they're very small and some of them are pretty big so it runs the gamut and we can help them mature their technology and it uh it feeds back into the commercial industry which once again is a, a virtuous cycle where we improve technology and we bring down cost and we make responsive space that much more realizable and you mentioned kratas which some of our listeners might not be familiar with so they're basically cooperative R&D agreements between the government and a business. Correct. So for instance, we, we might have a, a crater with a company that they come in and they're bringing some new technology. We give them access to the facility and we help them run their tests and we might get engineering data from their test. So we understand where the state of the art is. That, that may be an example. No, I, th I think that's helpful. And I think our listeners can imagine when you have these facilities that you described earlier that, you know, it might be a very limiting factor for our, these businesses that, that need access to different wind tunnels or rocket stands or just, uh, un, you know, some kind of unrestricted airspace, perhaps, that, you know, partnering with AFRL is, is a great option for them and, and a great option for us to, to advance our, our science. That's right. Yeah, something that comes to mind for me is uh, you'd mentioned earlier on, Dr. Greg, about how cool it was to go see a lot of the test stands over in Edwards. And I have to imagine, thinking of some of the uh, these smaller businesses, people who've also loved the history of space here, especially in the United States, looking at those in that moment where you get to look at them saying, hey, you're in the right hands. And just, just seeing that history before them, I mean, it's got to be cool to see it go across their faces, that their eyes light up every time. That's right. I was fortunate enough to be out there just a, a month or so ago and was able to meet with some of the commercial folks out of there and there. They in, are enthusiastic about being there. They're enthusiastic about the support that the lab folks are able to give them. And it's a win-win for us both. And we know that the Air Force isn't in the business of like commercialization. So you think about some of the things I'm sure you see in the news, whether it's SpaceX or another like larger company too, you, you know that a lot of that stuff had roots within within the Air Force. So if you look at the launch industry today, any commercial launch capability, the technology that went into their boosters has direct ties to the research and development that has gone on at the rocket lab over the last 50 years, direct traceability. So and, and space is a little bit different than the air breathing world in that we don't have a lot of government purpose built systems. We do rely 
on contracts with the big space commercial partners to launch our satellites or whatnot. So we have to have this relationship with them to help them and for them to help us. So it, it just works well, but space is a little different. And that kind of puts in perspective a lot of what we talked about today, that there's so many different realms that the Aerospace Systems Directorate operates in, whether it's literally, like you mentioned, some on land, much in air, even more in space. Being the director, you have to have a pretty unique perspective of all of this, or at least gain something from being at the helm of the directorate itself. So is there any wisdom, stories, or really just cool anecdotes you have after being the director for so or for a while, I should say, uh, that you want to share with the crew? So it, it's really fun to go talk to people and find people with the same passion for this space that I have. And especially people who understand the heritage and, and we can get sidetracked and start talking about some of the history and some of the facilities and what we've done here and who did it and when did they do it. That's just so exciting. And, and every day is a privilege to come to work. I, I have not had a bad day yet in the, in almost two years I've been here. It's just people are so dedicated to the mission of what we do. And that touches on a point I wanted to ask earlier, but I'm really glad we kind of uh, tied a nice bow on it, is what kept bringing you back to work at AFRL? Because I know throughout your career, you had many touch points with the research lab, but I think you put it right, hit it right in the head that uh, there's just such great people. You, you never really had a bad day. There's always something cool to sink your teeth into, really, and a new project to get excited about. At the end of the day, it's about the mission that we do. So I really wanted to come back, and I really wanted this best uh, this job because I really do feel like it's the best job. And if I can bring some of my background where I've worked on space programs and air programs and sustainment and R&D and missile defense, and I can bring all that context to help us define where we wanna go for the next quarter century, I think that's really important. And that's what drives me to come back and to participate in this and to, to help the organization into what's next. It's always what's next. How do we take all this goodness, whether it's the intellectual capital from our researchers and engineers, whether it's you know making us more business efficient from a contracting and a financial management perspective, new engineering processes like digital engineering, how do we tie all this stuff together? How do we do the modeling and simulation to prove out where do we need to focus our tech next? All that's got to come together to make us more efficient in the end to deliver products faster. So that's what drives me and that's why I come to work and, and I really enjoy this job. That definitely comes through. It almost feels like this job was meant for you based on your interests, even as a, as a kid. So we'd like to thank you for joining us today and hopefully we could catch you again on the future and do a deep dive in some of the great technology going on in your portfolio. All right, looking forward to it. We'll invite you out when we have our RQ auto show coming up here later and we can do a tech talk from the auto show. <laughs> oh, that sounds awesome. That I sounds amazing. Can, maybe we can even go live. <laughs> I think that'd be perfect. If we could actually see you in person and show the folks live what's going on with cars and tech around the aerospace directorate, I mean, that's a dream come true. Make sure to follow us on social media at Facebook, Twitter, LinkedIn, Instagram, and YouTube at AF Research Lab. And remember, stay curious. Logging off.